with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS well, good morning, FM. and welcome to a new version of After 9, Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm Stuart Parker, the former Monday host, now hosting on Tuesday, and I'm very pleased to have Echo Wiley back on the boards. It's great to have the band back together. Woohoo, glad to be here, Stuart. Right on. So uh, today we've got um, Michael Demers, uh, who is um, going to be uh, talking about uh, 2030 Olympics bid and that strange incident with the um, backup goalie uh, that we saw as our regular sports columnist. We'll have Sean Frakowiak at the end of the hour, our regular entertainment columnist, uh, and he'll be telling us what he's learned stranded on a sofa outside of Austin, Texas. And uh, in the middle, we have um, uh, two members of uh, UNBC Musical Productions who are appearing in an upcoming uh, musical theater event that starts at the Theater Northwest beginning on March the 12th. Solomon Gottsord and uh, Alex Verge will be on to talk about uh, this production and try and encourage you to buy a ticket. Now, before I go to Michael, I am going to do a thing that I'll be doing with the Tuesday edition. We're going to be more regular about having our regular people back. Art, our science guy. Michael, our uh, sports guy. Sean, our entertainment guy. And I'm also going to get back to doing something I was doing when I first started here, which is saying a few words about stories in the news, angles you might have missed. Rob Shaw, who loathes me, works for the Vancouver Sun Legislative Press Gallery, did a great column yesterday reminding us of how many cuts were in the B.C. budget and how pipeline protests overshadowed news that normally would get um, people pretty upset. And they're pretty relevant here in Prince George. The provincial government has cut mental health spending, road safety, conservation officers, food inspection, forestry inspection, and BC Transit and BC Bus North. So there are going to be cutbacks here uh, while the provincial government shuffles its money around in order to four-lane the Trans-Canada Highway between Golden and Kamloops and to six-lane it between Abbotsford and Surrey. So um, keep an eye on those cuts, and if you find the buses a little less frequent or uh, other things are going a little wrong, it may be because the provincial government has laid off the person who's supposed to do that job. Information out of MIT uh, late last week, the Bolivian election, it turns out, was not rigged, not fraudulent. Uh, The best people in the world who do enumerative combinatorics, that's electoral systems math, conducted a detailed study of the Bolivian election, and it appears that Evo Morales was indeed removed in a military coup under false pretenses, and I think we know at whose behest that likely was. Um, The Israeli election, they still haven't quite finished counting the ballots, but it looks like it's going to be another hung Knesset, because Avigdor Lieberman, the leader of Israel Our Home, the secularist ultranationalist, will not enter into government with the Arab parties, nor will he enter into government with Benjamin Netanyahu. That prevents the blue and white party from forming a majority with the Arab list. And 
It prevents um, Likud from continuing its incumbent government unless it removes Benjamin Netanyahu uh, because of his corruption charges. So it looks like this is our third hung election in a row unless Avigdor Lieberman agrees to work with the Arab citizens of Israel who comprise the third largest party in the Knesset and who haven't been part of government since 1967. So watch for those negotiations. An exciting move forward may happen in Israel because voters are tiring of these endless hung parliaments. Now we go to Michael Demers, who's on the line uh, from Mexico. Um, How's the holiday going, Michael? Oh, it's going pretty good, and uh, good morning to the people of Prince George. Well, so um, first let's go to the possibly comical thing that's going on. A statement came out from general managers in the NHL yesterday that they are not going to change their backup goalie policy in spite of events that took place in Toronto last week. Can you fill us in what's going on here with the backup goalie controversy? Well, it's only a controversy because it involves the Toronto Maple Leafs being humiliated on, um, on an evening when they should have been able to win. And in a nutshell, for those that aren't aware, all NHL teams have to have what are deemed emergency backup goalies available for either the home or away team in any jurisdiction. And this comes down to the fact that goalies are highly specialized. All teams have two goalies, sometimes a third that they can call up from their minor league team. But if a goalie is injured uh, on game day, uh, you go to your backup. If the backup gets injured, you don't have anybody. So this is where these emergency backup goalies come from. And they're there's some restrictions about it. You can't have former pros, for example, you know, recently retired goalies. It has to be an amateur. And in this case, the gentleman who was uh, brought in to play for the Carolina Hurricanes is, uh, is an amateur. Uh, he's also a Zamboni driver, which is about the most Canadian thing you can imagine. And what, the reason this story made news was because he came into the game. Uh, he, I think he stopped 8 of 10 shots, and uh, Carolina wound up winning. So in the, in the hierarchy of belief around the talent level of NHL players, a amateur emergency backup goalie should have been shellacked by NHL caliber players. And his ability to stop 8 of 10 shots is remarkable. So, so why, you know, is it, why, why do they have to be amateurs? Why not have retired NHL people as backup goalies? No one really seems to know the answer other than uh, this rule has been in place forever. Uh, it's always been the case that amateurs uh, have filled this role. I don't know if it's because they want to discourage uh, sandbagging and having um, you know, backup goalies that you can, uh, of high caliber that you could have play for your team without impacting the salary cap, for example. You know, these are... The, the rarity of this thing is is really what people need to be reminded of. A, an emergency backup goalie comes into a game uh, almost never. I, I think the when this story broke, they talked about two two backup goalies in total in five thousand games ever seeing the ice. There was a time, um, well, I must have been ten years ago, 
the Canucks lost both their goalies to injury, and so they called their emergency backup, which happened to be uh, a uh, University of British Columbia Thunderbird uh, goalie. And so he was sitting on the bench because the, the regular backup wasn't able to attend. And uh, I think it was Roberto Luongo at the time went down and looked like he was injured. The camera panned over to the emergency backup, and he looked horrified that he <laughs> might actually have to take the ice. But this, at the end of the day, if it wasn't the Maple Leafs, no one would have even noticed that um, the backup goalie was in play other than just as a, oh, hey, look, a backup goalie made it. The fact that they lost, couldn't beat 8 out of 10 shots was, uh, was the more important part. Right. So um, uh, moving to the slightly, and I emphasize slightly more serious subject, um, I was on CKNW the other week debating uh, former city councillor uh, George Affleck about the idea of a 2030 Olympics bid coming out of um, Vancouver. Um uh, Mr. Furlong, uh, very excited about the idea. Uh, what do you make of um, this effort uh, uh, to get the Olympics to come back to BC so soon? I'm of two minds on this. And on the one hand, uh, I view with great skepticism any city that's bidding on the Olympics. Uh, and if you look at the number of Olympic bids, over the last 15 years, they've dropped quite a bit. And the reason is because more and more cities are becoming aware of just how costly it is to host the games. And by costly, I mean it, it can bankrupt your city, and in some cases it will bankrupt your country, if you look at a, a situation like Greece after Athens hosted the Summer Games. Now, the Summer Games are far more expensive than the Winter Games, but um, in general, I mean, I voted against the 2010 Olympics the last time around because I thought we could spend the money on, on a lot more important things. But the reason I'm split on this one this time is because the infrastructure that we built in 2010 will technically still be usable in 2030. And this is one of the great complaints about the Olympics. You know, you bid on it, you build all these stadiums and different facilities and all of this money gets spent. And then years later, you have nothing left to show for it other than abandoned facilities and, and abandoned stadiums. So having the Olympics occur over and over again in the same place makes far more financial sense. Now, that being said, right, we've got to take this with a grain of salt. The Summer Olympics are much more attributable to this because of weather. The Winter Olympics, as everyone remembers, we almost didn't have snow in 2010. We spent a ton of money bringing in snow and creating snow for the slopes. So if we project ahead 10 more years, is there going to be any snow in Whistler in 2030? Well, yeah, and the last snow was trucked in from Manning Park, right? Uh, Whistler was already having trouble. And, of course, Whistler is... Uh, the first uh, government in BC that is uh, suing fossil fuel companies for the damage climate change has caused. I can tell you right now, here at the 54th parallel, it is not cold enough for us to host the Winter Olympics in Prince George. Our temperatures over the course of this year have been, on average, about 20 degrees higher than what we're supposed to see. And... Uh, 
it's um, it certainly is disconcerting watching that climate change take place. Um, and I, I got to say, I have more of a philosophical thing with the Winter Olympics, which is it's kind of the white people Olympics. Like once white people stopped winning most of the things in the Summer Olympics, we all got more invested in the Winter Olympics. And it seems to me like, should we even call this an Olympics when it doesn't include most um, most of the world? Uh, in that, um, you know, you sure you can get a Jamaican bobsled team and it can be the, you know, subject of a Disney comedy. But um, are Winter Olympics even Olympics in the sense that the whole world is competing as equals? That's a good question. I mean, when you look at the number of sports and the people that participate, the Winter Olympics are tiny compared to the Summer Olympics. And philosophically, I, I don't have an issue with, you know, people competing on a global scale on sports that traditionally happen in the wintertime. Uh, that doesn't really bother me too much. What, what my concern is, is the modern Olympic Games are so corrupt uh, that you really have to question why anyone bids on these things at all. And, and even just from a pure math, you know, point of view, when you look at the amount of money that was spent in Vancouver in 2010, people will say, oh yeah, we needed to have the improvements to the Sea to Sky Highway, which was a death trap of a highway. Great, that got improved. The convention center that was upgraded and built for to coincide with the Olympics. Great, now we have this world-class convention center. Oh, and the SkyTrain going to the airport. You know, oh, great. Vancouver loves to pretend it's a world-class city. Well, world-class cities have trains running to the airport because world-class cities have trains running to the airport. It's not because we needed to have it just for the Olympics. It should have been there anyways. And when you look at the amount of money that B.C. and Canadian taxpayers, but predominantly B.C. taxpayers, spent on the 2010 Olympics, my question to you, being up in Prince George, is for those that don't live in Vancouver or the Greater Vancouver Regional District... You know, half the population of B.C. lives in the GVRD, but that means half the population does not. So do people in Prince George feel good about all the money that got spent on a convention center and the Sea to Sky Highway and the SkyTrain? Does that matter to them at all? Yeah, I, I, there's certainly there's certainly an element of pride here that people experienced that uh, that does, that it, people feel pride as British Columbians and uh, as Canadians um, I think that uh, the assessment of the convention center, the $7 billion in additional debt, all of the corruption, um, I don't think that played well anywhere in B.C. And uh, certainly, I think if, um, you know, there were interest in, uh, and certainly what we see is again and again, uh, Prince George falls behind in terms of infrastructure. Are, uh, none of the infrastructure improvements went into Highway 97 or Highway 1 or Highway 16. Uh, even the sort of most bread and butter stuff, there's nothing in particular that we had to show for it other than the $7 billion increase in the provincial debt. So um, uh, I uh, and those, those 
silly little Anukshuk sculptures where Gordon Campbell tried to convince everybody that the Inuit lived in B.C., um, you still see those kicking around in Vancouver here and there, little uh, remnants of that uh, that strange symbol. But uh, I haven't found one up here yet. Maybe maybe it'll be on someone's mantelpiece or uh, stenciled on a wall somewhere. But uh, certainly none of the memorabilia that uh, you might see in terms of material artifacts uh, is stuff that one finds in uh, in northern BC. Anyway, we're um, we're coming up to our first break of the day. I'm going to let you get back to the pool in Mexico, and um, we're going to start making a monthly thing of this now that we're on Tuesdays. So uh, thanks very much, Michael. Thank you, and uh, everybody have a good day. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right, we're back, and uh, in studio I have Alex Verge and Solomon Gotsard. Uh Alex is the vice president and choreographer for UNBC Musical Productions. Solomon is the society's secretary, and uh, they're both um, uh, important parts of a new production and uh, part of an annual tradition uh, at Theatre Northwest starting on March the 12th. Um, Alex, do you want to take us into um, this, uh, this year's musical? Absolutely. So we are putting on a show called 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. It's a mouthful. Um, it's a musical comedy. It's about a bunch of 12-year-olds competing in a spelling bee. It's a good time. It's not a real spelling it's, bee. Yes, imperative. It is not actually a spelling We've bee. I've had a lot of people ask. It's a musical. <laughs> <laughs> not a joke, a sales campaign. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, very funny. There's a couple really touching moments, um, but it's mostly definitely a comedy if you want a good laugh. So, um, now, uh, your... I, I looked through the UNBC website and discovered, to my surprise, that um, there is no theater and performance studies program at UNBC. So this is a, a an entirely student-led initiative. Um, what leads people at a university that has no theater program to use the university to do theater? Right. I mean, I think a lot of us are are kind of stuck up here in the north and uh, a lot of people come from different places as well we've had a, we have a lot of out of out of town people in our club as well but we just kind of find ourselves at this university for whatever reason and and realize that if you have if you want to be involved in this kind of thing you sort of have to do it yourself right because there is no theater program there's not a lot of there's not a lot of that kind of thing, performance art. And um, so our, our, our founder, I think about seven years ago, decided, you know what, we need to make this club. And it's been growing ever since. So I think uh, we've, we've been sort of upping our game every year in terms of just professionalism. And we've been able to increase our bu- budget due to the support we've received from the community and just keep doing bigger and better shows and... Uh, yeah, we've and we've got people from all kind. We've got people from sciences, from English, from all kinds of different departments as well. So it's really cool to see. So, um, uh, so this is a self-professionalizing endeavor in yeah. a sense. Um, so, where um, where do you turn to um, uh, bring in sort of um, higher level uh, performance techniques and insights? 
Um, I mean, a lot of us have a lot of experience in theater. Um, I personally, I went to musical theater school for a while. I've been doing it forever and ever, so I have a lot of experience there. Um, our founder and still involved with the club, Ariel Bernier, has been doing theater for years, did Judy Russell's stuff, has done some other um, semi-professional stuff in some other cities. So a lot of us bring it in ourselves. And then also um, we have a few people in the community that we turn to for help. Um, sometimes Judy Russell gives us advice. Uh, Marnie from Theater Northwest has been wonderful. She's really helpful there, gives us a lot of advice. And some of the other employees at Theater Northwest give us advice and um, help us out when we need it. So we have definitely a few people that uh, we turn to for help, but a lot of it is just kind of us figuring out what we're doing, what we need to do, and working together. So uh, you mentioned Theatre Northwest. Now, your production is not a Theatre Northwest production. What is your relationship with them to uh, allow you to get hold of the theatre and uh, make use of their executive director? Yeah, so I th about two years ago, uh, when the club put on Into the Woods, this was before my time, but um, that was sort of their their spring blockbuster at the time, and um, Jack Grinhouse from Theatre Northwest had, had sort of talked to some of the members of the club and was uh, basically asking about an, a partnership. He said, you know, you guys have a lot of p potential. If you had a professional stage and a, a professional environment, I think you could really pull off something great. So that was the beginning of uh, our partnership. Now we've been renting the space from the theater for uh, the past two years. This is our second second spring with them. We've also done a, a fall show with them back in September. Um, but it's just been, it's not just a simple, you know, business transaction. It's, we really have received a lot of help and mentorship from Marnie and from John Riley, who's, is the production manager there. And, and it's, it's been a fantastic experience. I mean, just in terms of, it makes us look so much more credible to be on, you know, a stage rather than in the Canfor Theater, which is a lecture hall. It's just not designed for that kind of thing. Right, and um, obviously that also sends messages to the audience that this is a show that is not just for the university, it's for the city. Exactly. Now, now one of um, uh, one of Marnie's initiatives has been uh, relaxed theater programs. Is that something that she's been able to squeeze out of you for, uh, for this time? We haven't talked about that for this year. Um, it's something we would, I think, definitely think about in the future. Um, but no, we haven't really discussed it this year. This show is a little bit, I don't know. The show a little is bit kind over of relaxed. <laughs> well, it's relaxed in some senses, but in some senses it's not. We have a bit of uh, running around and things like that into the audience. Yeah. And it's, it's a, I don't know. It's, I think it could work, but we'd have to sort of rejig it a lot. Yeah, we definitely, we could talk but about it in the future. To, but yeah, something to think about Not with for this sure. show yet. So, um, uh, and uh, after the break, we'll go more into the specific features of this show, why people uh, might uh, might find it amusing. But I, I wanted to ask, um, uh, with a high quality of performance, do you erect any, uh, what kind of barriers do you erect or stages of involvement do you have? Do people um, have to audition for these parts? What level of competition is there? Yes, uh, we do hold auditions. Um, it's less, I mean, we try to make it clear that we are a club for anybody who wants, is passionate. The passion is what's important to us. So yes, we hold auditions, but it's more about figuring out where they fit in the club and how they can be involved. It's not about like picking you and rejecting you kind of thing. Um, and it's more just kind of like we're trying to be helpful in getting 
people prepped to do more theater in the future. Like we kind of want to be a stepping stone for people to realize that they're passionate about theater and continue that. So auditioning is a, a basis of that skill and of that passion. So we definitely hold auditions. Um, that's, I mean, there's not a lot, like we, we kind of just hold people accountable um, for their passion. So uh, when we come back from uh, our break, we'll uh, uh, talk a bit about the script, why it was chosen, <laughs> and uh, what people uh, can get out of uh, turning up for um, the uh, 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. You nice. got it. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to break with us all. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. All right. I got the name right uh, last time, but I'm not pushing it. Uh, so instead, um, this spelling bee musical. Uh, who, uh, who wrote it? How old is this thing? Uh, how long has this script been kicking around musical theater? Oh, you're asking us trivia now. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's by William Finn, uh, did the music anyways, and it's, it's not too old. It's, what do you think? Ten years? I don't actually know. Something, something It was on like Broadway, that. I think, about ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, definitely some notable names. It was on Broadway for a while. It was a big hit there. Um, it was really big because there's some audience participation involved in this show. So people really loved seeing it on Broadway. And was it the same idea here where uh, did they have 12-year-olds playing 12-year-olds or did they deliberately have older people it's playing It's written for adults to play 12-year-olds. Yeah, 12 -year -olds. Ah, yeah that's kind of the joke is that it's a bunch of... I mean, I actually play an adult in the show. I play Rona Lisa Peretti. I'm the... Um, I'm the, the host of the, the Spelling Bee, so I'm supposed to be 33, and Saul, who is 11 inches taller than me, is playing a 12-year-old, so it's kind of the joke that um, it's adults playing 12-year-olds. So it's supposed to be uncanny, It's there's supposed to be a sense of mismatch yes. between yes, the character and the actor. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I remember 10 years ago, and, uh, you know, I mean, obviously it was a kinder, more innocent time, you know. <laughs> there were fewer orange people terrorizing us but uh uh and but in a and there was a whole raft of spelling bee plays and musicals and whatever that somehow the midwestern spelling bee had become the only thing that the different factions of america could agree was good <laughs> now i don't think we'd even have that like i think if we had like a republican spelling bee people would <laughs> you know, shout out obscenities or at least make misogynistic comments. I, I don't I don't really know how that would work. But there's a sense of like an idealized American past. Yeah. Because the spelling bee is about being knowledgeable and disciplined and put together. So how does this piece play with those sorts of themes? Is it how is it interacting with that American ideal of the continent disciplined youth? Yeah, well, I think what comes to mind is there's a character, Marcy Park, who's... Well, there's actually quite a few characters, and I mean, really, all of them in their own ways are have this sort of idea of, of being the best and being, you know, uh, showing their merit through spelling all these words. But but there's there's one character, Marcy Park, who realizes that she doesn't really need to to buy into that and throws it well i don't want to spoil <gasps> it i shouldn't say that but she she decides she doesn't need to uh continue you know trying to 
rise to that ideal anymore. And then there's, I mean, all of our characters, like even you, Rona Lisa Peretti was the, the champ back in the, what is it, third the third annual. annual. Spelling bee. That's right. And, uh, but she's still sort of gung-ho about this whole... Yeah, it actually, um, it's kind of an interesting commentary on that idea of like the perfect way to show child's intellectualism like they they all kind of show in little ways how it can be harmful to expect your child to be perfect in this way or how like their own expectations of themselves push them to do certain things like it's very very funny but it also definitely has this like underlying what does this mean for children this idea of like standing up there and spelling perfectly and and being disciplined and wonderful right so um uh, so the humor works in some ways off this American ideal. You've mentioned a couple of times interactions with the audience. So if one bought a ticket to this show, um, what could you what could you guarantee people in terms of like things that would and might might not happen well, to them? They can rest they assured we, we won't do anything to them or ask anything of them if they if they don't consent. So it'll be we'll we'll choose people beforehand and and they'll have to agree to it. So it's not the sort of thing where we're kind of forcing people into uncomfortable situations. But um, if if you do uh, want to be involved, we will take you on stage. Rona here will. Um, get you to fill out your <laughs> registration, give you a number, and you will be asked to spell some words. So oh, it could, fun. <laughs> could be stressful could participate. for you. Oh, my goodness. So, um, uh, so yes, if one, um, one wants to turn up for this event, uh, you should be okay at spelling or not sign the form, <laughs> yes. or just be more willing to contribute to the comedy of desperately trying to spell things. Twelve-year-olds 12 year should know how to spell. Exactly. Okay, well, this uh, this sounds good. Now, you're the director of choreography. Yes. Um, what does that entail in terms of, like, being a kinetic show? You say you move on and off stage. Yes. Uh, so, what challenges did um, uh, the choreography present in the uh, in the this? Uh, you weren't able to rehearse, obviously, in the necessarily in the same place as you're staging the thing. Right. How do you sort of import choreography from one physical layout into another? It has definitely been an interesting challenge. Like, there's some sections where we all just kind of stand in a formation and dance, and that's that's easy to do. We know how to do that. We can stand on the floor. But there are definitely parts where we run off stage. There's parts where we use our set pieces that we haven't had access to yet. Um, and it has been, there are some things where I'm like, okay, well, I guess we'll deal with that when we get in the theater and see if it works. Um, but a lot of it has just been kind of seeing what my cast wants to do a lot like I'm a very open choreographer in that way I'll have ideas and then I'll also just kind of throw it at the actor of like what would you like to do in this place what do you feel comfortable doing especially because we're amateurs like we're not all professionals I really try to make sure that I know my actors are comfortable in what they're doing because then they can do it to the best of their abilities right so uh, so in a way how this show shakes out is not fully knowable and this is probably <laughs> yet another reason people should purchase a ticket so the spiel promote the show tell yes. them how to get a ticket and all the different ways yes we want you to see this show but it's not for us it's for you <laughs> so this is a benevolent thing i mean we are a non-profit you know we're just poor students but anyways we uh you can get tickets to this thing it's run first of all running from the 12th to the 15th 
That's a Thursday to Sunday, and then the 19th to the 22nd of so March. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, evening shows, all of them. Yeah, uh, doors at 7. No, nope. doors, doors at 6.30, 630 show, show at 7. At seven. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, and you can get your tickets at tickets.theaternorthwest.com, as well as at Books and Company. Yes. Great, so people can wander into Books and Company, and now I know it ends on the 19th. Ends on the 22nd. And the 22nd. <laughs> ends on the 22nd. Okay, this is important information, because how could I schedule my next D&D game without knowing when exactly. uh, your uh, uh, time on stage ends? Okay, thanks very much for coming into the studio. Um, after the break, we'll uh, be raising uh, Sean Frakowiak in Austin, Texas, to give us that perspective from the couch far away. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're back. Uh, uh, we have, uh, first of all, the tickets are 20 bucks. That was the that was the thing we missed saying last time. So theaternorthwest.com or head down to Books and Company in person um, and, uh, and grab a ticket. And uh, now we have uh, Sean Frakowiak, uh, our... Uh, Regular entertainment correspondent uh, from a uh, a sofa outside of Austin, Texas. Before we go to the Amazon catalog and some stuff that I'm interested in your reviews of, um, A, welcome back, and B, how goes that uh, morass of Social Security bureaucracy you're negotiating? Uh, No news. Um... They, when they uh, give you their their denial, the the next step is you uh, you have to appeal the de- the denial, and then they set up a hearing. So it was, I think, eighteen month lead time from when I got the announcement that they were going to schedule a hearing at some point in the future. So perhaps by this summer, I will get a notice of when they've decided to give me a hearing. <laughs> so sometime so, next year, probably. Right. Now, some people would say that uh, Social Security in America is broken, that disability claims are broken, that they don't work. I mean, my personal argument is just that the government is trying to murder you. Uh, but um, at least we're taking in some good TV while this is happening. So um, I recently took your advice and began watching uh, Man in the High Castle. And now this has now taken over uh, the life of me and uh, my partner. We're going to be done this show pretty soon. Um, this is a really amazing piece of, uh, of, uh, of, of TV. Um, what, uh, I mean, there's lots of stuff that grabs you. What grabbed you about it? What, um, what were the things that uh, make a case for the show? Because uh, I, just, I just got to the name of the show and did what you said. Uh, how would you pitch this show to somebody who wasn't sure whether they'd like it? Well, uh, first stop would be the, the novel it's based on. Uh, it's a Philip K. Dick novel, one of his better novels, recognizes perhaps his greatest novel. This is the guy who came up with the story that Blade Runner's based on. A bunch of other material that sci-fi fans are going to be familiar with is based on Philip K. Dick, A Scanner Darkly, that sort of thing. Um, Philip K. Dick was a great um, 
speculative science fiction writer. He he would he would come up with an idea and then would really do a great job of mapping out how that little change or, or that big change would affect society, how it would affect culture, how it would affect the way people related to each other. Uh, sort of a human perspective take on science fiction, whereas a, a lot of science fiction stories will be more um, noble scientists are going out and, and dealing with this problem and coming up with snap scientific solutions or shooting lasers at, at things that need to be shot at. This, this is more of a, a sociological sort of science fiction. Um, and Man in the High Castle specifically is a story of uh, a world where the Axis won World War II. That, that, that's just the, the cliff notes on it. The bad guys won. Um, the U.S., where most of the action of the story takes place, has been divided into some neutral areas and a, a German occupation zone and a Japanese occupation zone. And what the TV series, I think, does a great job of doing, it's set in the 60s, so this is a good 20 years after the war has ended, uh, it does a, it does a good job of presenting a, a plausible picture of how the Nazis being in charge of most of the eastern U.S. would have affected the culture, how people would behave if they were in such a if they were in such a setting, and, and ditto with the West Coast being under Japanese occupation, how that shifted the culture, um, and that's to me is the really the most entertaining part of the of the TV series is just looking at all the ways the world shifted, little ways, not not big ways, not like how many German tanks are occupying the Soviet, the former Soviet Union, but how are, what happened to the music that people listen to? What happened to the way people go about their daily business? I, I, I find the whole series fascinating on that, on that, uh, in that regard. Yeah, that was, that was my experience. It's like, and then the science fiction started creeping into season three. I thought, no, I don't want that. I just want to see more of Nazi America in 1962. Uh, that um, you know, you almost feel like uh, the the small amount of sci-fi elements distract you from the bigger sort of anthropological, sociological picture. Um, and uh, you know, I was I thought. And I, I agree very much. There are these little character sketches, like the female lead's mother, who's a minor, minor character, but lives in occupied San Francisco. It, her speech is just a stream of anti-Japanese racial obscenities until everyone leaves the house, and then it turns out she's addicted to watching sumo wrestling. And I thought that that was a, that was a nice picture of people... Uh, having these complex relationships with uh, relationships of domination. Now, um, the um, Philip K. Dick, it's a little upsetting to think that somebody suffering from paranoid schizophrenia in the early Cold War would be so effective at producing things that speak to our times. But um, from watching this, you do get a feeling that our times are being spoken to a bit. Um, do you think this is something that, do you think that um, 
its production and things like this. Is this something that we um, that we should link to the Trump era and the reemergence of uh, of fascism? Is this something that could have been imagined as well for television if it were made ten or twenty years ago? Well, ten or twenty years ago, it wouldn't have the same sting. Certainly, um, there were no obvious fascists in the running for public office. Uh, 10 or 20 years ago. So this would have been, it would have seemed safer. Like, oh yeah, the Nazis are bad guys. I, I've heard this story before. Now it, it obviously speaks to our time. The funny thing about the, about the TV series is that there's way more science fiction in the TV series and the mechanics of how information is being conveyed back and forth and the, the reality twisting, all of that stuff. There was very little of that in the novel. Um, in the novel, um, all the information about the, the and I don't want to spoil it too badly, but the, the premise is that there's this subversive idea running around the world of the man in the high castle that there's another possible world where the good guys want. Um, and the, the, the mechanics of how that is represented in the series are very different than the me- mechanics of that idea in the book. In the book, the person who comes up with that, that idea happens upon it through using Chinese... Uh, oh, divination? Divination, yes. Divination was the word I was looking for. He uses Chinese divination to come up with the idea. Right. <laughs> it is, is a much less sci-fi concept, and the the book has a much nastier stinger, um, because the world that he imagines where the good guys won is a hundred times better than our world. He assumes that in a world where the good guys won, everything would be better. Everything would have been resolved more fairly. There would be more freedom. There would be more equity. They would have dealt with these obvious societal problems that we have the power to deal with. The, that the is real a thing in the novel is that if the good guys won, why isn't the world better? <laughs> right. So, uh, and that that speaks to the different horizon of expectations in 1962 when the book was written. We're going to go to a short break, and when come back, we'll talk a little bit about um, the performances, and maybe get to something else, maybe not. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. We're back with uh, Sean Frakoviak talking about the Amazon Prime production Man in the High Castle that just completed its fourth and final season. Uh, I don't know exactly what services in Canada it uh, broadcasts on, uh, but on the other hand, I don't believe in intellectual property rights, so uh, people should uh, really try and torrent that thing if they possibly can. Uh, in any case, uh, Sean, I uh, one of the things that I found most disquieting about the show were all the things that were the same, where if the Nazis had won the war, all kinds of elements of how families worked, how material culture was, what drugs the rich and upper middle class were doing, um, that it's a little bit chilling to see how recognizable the 1962 of um, Man in the High Castle is. 
Indeed. Some of my favorite bits from the the series, uh, the first season, our characters run into a kindly country cop yes. <laughs> who, who acts just like a country cop would would be in our rea- would would in our reality, but the uh, the context of it is so horrifying, and, and and how horrifying it is 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 really accentuated by how normal this guy's acting. Um, and in season four, um, you get to see a lot more black characters. Uh, the, the black characters really start to come to the forefront of the action of the series, and there's a. There's a strong statement to me that for them, not a lot has changed. <laughs> that, right. that, that is certainly their perspective. Yes, the Jim Crow's, uh, there's actually, we just watched a scene from season three where there's a public protest in the streets of San Francisco, and it's mostly people of color in the protest, and you realize that they're reenacting the March on Selma with the dogs and the fire hoses and the billy clubs, that they're reenacting an image that took place in America in 1962. And then it ends with a Buddhist monk self-immolating, just like American-occupied Vietnam in 1962. So um, we do have a striking sense of this, but it's not just politics. I was blown away by the quality of Rufus Sewell's performance. I think that this is this has got to be the uh, the peak of his career, playing this patriotic Yankee American SS officer. He is really, for me, the crux of the series. His story is by far the most interesting. Um, uh, other characters are running around trying. A lot of them are running around trying to do good guy things. Rufus Sewell's character is by no stretch of the imagination a good guy, but his story and the the obstacles he deals with are so compelling. Um, And to let people in who who haven't seen the series, he is a high-level official in the American Reich, the the, um, part of America that's run by the greater greater Nazi Reich. He's a high-level official, and he used to be a general in the U.S. Army. So he's this old patriot who switched sides and still sees himself as a patriot. And oh my goodness. (laughs) And also, he's a family man. And it was very interesting watching the way that even though you know that this person is organizing murder and uh, on an enormous scale, the first time uh, my partner cried during the show was over this guy's love for his family and uh, the way in which the fascist is humanized, I think, really does speak to our historical moment. So as with Star Wars, uh, we never got to the other stuff in the catalog, um, but uh, we're going to be doing this more regularly so that we eventually get to all the stuff I want to ask you about. But I want to thank you for uh, coming on the program uh, again and uh, taking us uh, through an appreciation of Philip K. Dick. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. All right. Now, uh, we're just uh, near the uh, near the top of the hour. It's about to be uh, 10 a.m. Uh, this is... Um, a, uh, an attempt at doing a more disciplined, more predictable version of After Nine on Tuesdays. Um, 
happy to get uh, feedback in uh, make in making this a more balanced radio program. Uh, of course, uh, just to uh, recapitulate uh, our news from the beginning of the hour, we're going into Super Tuesday in the United States, and uh, this is going to be a fascinating electoral contest. I don't think, um, uh, with the front runners going in, all men in their uh, late 70s, I don't think that... Um, uh, when Barack Obama was elected, we would imagine that uh, the 2020 American election uh, would be um, three different white men over 75 vying to uh, vying to take on Donald Trump, the 74-year-old white guy. So, um, of course, this obscures the fact that these candidates could not be more different. Uh, and it might make us question the degree to which we try to deduce somebody's ideology from the identity category they occupy. There's far more contrast going into Super Tuesday than there has been in any Democratic presidential nomination rates since 1948. And yet, uh, the way many in the media would tell us Joe Biden, the uh, corrupt old senator, Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire, and Bernie Sanders, the socialist, are all the same guy. On that note, uh, it's 10 o'clock. Thanks for listening.